Well, 2018 was a very busy year, and I think you know I got the leadership job on February the 3rd, and then through the spring we noticed that the NDP were piling on 18 new taxes, and that was a big surprise to many of us because we thought this would be a more moderate NDP government like we've seen in places like Manitoba, but instead this is an old-style tax-and-spend NDP, and they have paid basically no attention whatsoever to small business Their only concern about building the economy was to bring home a liberal project, which was the LNG Canada deal. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Here we go with another edition of In the House. It's going inside BC politics. That was the voice of Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the BC Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in the BC legislature, uh, talking some shot, year-end shots at the NDP. And Rob, I guess this is forever thus in BC politics. Of course, we're going to have some partisan back and forth here at the end of the year. It doesn't matter what the government does. They're still all a bunch of radicals, according to the Liberals, right? What did, what did you think of Wilkinson in your year-end uh, talk with him? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. We remember back when we were covering the February budget. I mean, there are a lot of taxes in the NDP's budget. And the Liberals yep. have seized upon this. And you heard Andrew uh, Wilkinson off the top saying 18 new taxes, a big tax and spend budget. I mean, that certainly plays well into what the Liberals want people to think about the NDP. That For their gonna, base, it yeah, would play well. Tax the bejesus yeah. out of you and, uh, and spend every last penny of it. But uh, I was interested in his comment that it doesn't consider this to be a very moderate NDP government like in Manitoba. And I, you know, I guess that's a debatable uh, assertion. I have not really picked up the undertones that the NDP are as radical as they could be. Certainly they've got a lot of very activist cabinet ministers that left to their own devices would probably be doing a lot worse than they're doing now. But uh, outside of the union-only construction rules for major projects, which the NDP announced this year, that idea that if they're going to build a massive highway or a bridge, it's got to be hand-picked unions that'll do the work. Yeah. I don't know. Have you seen much evidence of a radical kind of, um, you know, socialism? No. I mean, if I was to look back at previous NDP governments, like, say, in the 1990s, I would think that maybe the Mike Harcourt government would have been further left to this government, for example. But um, I, I think that maybe... A key measuring stick for a lot of people might be, well, let's look at the budget. Have they blown the budget? No. I mean, the budget's still balanced. As a matter of fact, they got a massive surplus, just uh, Finance Minister Carol James in the last uh, quarterly update. So if if the NDP, if this government had come into power inheriting a whole bunch of balanced budgets in a row from the Liberals and then immediately blew the bank right, and racked up huge deficits and really jacked up taxes big time, then I think you might have an argument that you got a radical government here in place. But I think this Horgan government has been very careful around around financing. I think they knew the danger there if they go into, started going into deficit spending. And they've been real careful on that. And another thing is, think about the stuff that Horgan's done on things like approving the Site C Dam, albeit begrudgingly. He said he didn't want to do it, but he did it anyway. Uh, they got that big LNG plant through. So these are big projects that the Liberals supported as well. So I think when Wilkinson's talking about this is a radical government, I think certainly that's an appeal to the Liberal Party base. That's going to get them votes. And it's also it's always a fight for the center, isn't it? Kind of a center, a moderate, middle-of-the-road voter. And if he can create a perception, at least in the minds of some voters, that this is this is a uh, an extremist government, maybe that wins them some, some, some votes from moderate from moderate voters. But I think it's a tough sell, really. It will be interesting because we know from the February budget that most of the tax increases that the NDP had proposed in the election are done. 
they have brought them in already. So that's the all the increases the on uh, you know luxury homes and yeah. high income earners. That idea that yeah. if you have a little bit more, you should contribute a little bit more, as Finance Minister Carol James would say. So. Yeah. If the NDP need more money in the next February budget, where do that where does that come from? And if they plan on introducing new taxes, and I yes. think that does fit into the liberal narrative of every budget, you're going to see some new tax in order to afford some new spending. If they just have another budget, they don't really need any new taxes right now. If you look at the quarterly financial update, but if they do start bringing them in, I guess it does feed into unless that. unless the economy goes wrong, right? I think maybe the the one danger for this government that could be lurking is if there's some sort of an economic downturn in in the in the next year or two, and that starts to erode government revenues, and they're forced to take some corrective measures that are unpopular. Then you get into a danger zone where maybe the liberals get some traction saying that this is we don't need a socialist government here out of control. Look what they're doing to the economy. If they can if there's a if there's an economic downturn and they can pin it on the NDP, maybe the NDP is vulnerable there. But I think Horgan, I think, is, has shown to be himself to be pretty smart. I, I take your point about the union contract stuff. I mean, that that is kind of classic old school NDP politics, mm-hmm. right? A union only construction policy and only our unions get the get the jobs. But you know what? When he announced that, I don't know. It didn't seem like there was a whole lot of outrage over it because I think there's a, a perception in the minds of some people to say, well, yeah, it's an NDP government. Of course, they're going to do something for their union buddies, uh, just uh, like the liberals would help out their business buddies when they're in power. But right? on the other side of that argument, we see Carol James basically signing a whole bunch of new contracts with public sector unions for not exorbitant well, that, yeah, rates. Yeah. Two, two, and two yeah. uh, wage increases over three years is not a gold-plated handshake yeah. or parachute or whatever is supposed to be gold-plated in these deals. So yeah. that's not exactly you know what you would expect from an activist NDP government. That's more of a prudent kind of liberal bargaining mandate. But I think the larger issue, Smitty, that we deal with when we're listening to Andrew Wilkinson and the liberal critics here is this idea that because they were in power for so long, because they're touching on files and issues that they themselves messed the bed on uh, in some <laughs> cases. Yeah. This is a family podcast. We have to use yeah. the proper terminology. Um, that, that people have a hard time taking seriously what they're saying. And I asked Andrew Wilkinson that question. Let's listen to what he says about that. Yeah, this comes up regularly. And I'm quite happy to say, look, I'm a new leader of this party. Part of that is setting a new agenda and having a go-forward, forward-looking approach rather than reliving the past. Nobody's going to benefit by talking about what happened in 2006 or 2012. We've got to talk about what's going to happen today and into 2019 because that's what the public are concerned about. Okay, good question, right? Because the Liberals have got they got baggage of their own. Yeah, but don't live in the past, Smitty. That's Andrew's, Andrew's comment is uh, don't live in, It doesn't do anyone any good to relive the past, which may <laughs> technically be true. I mean, I know he's tried to advance the idea that he is a new leader for the yeah. party. But it doesn't – when you are a new leader who happened to be the former president and a deputy minister under Gordon Campbell, you know, it's hard to get out from the idea that your party has a history. Yeah. And I, I just think it's it's very difficult to – sometimes listen to the liberals go on and on about ICBC or about money laundering or about, you know, housing or about child care and without rolling your eyes and just going, my, you know, good grief. Like there was a long time they could have done something about yeah. those files. They were in power for 16 years and that's a lot of baggage you accumulate over that period of time. And certainly I think that's continuing to be a problem for him. There is some acute irony listening to something like that when he says, 
don't go in the past. Let's not look. Let's not not look backwards or in the rearview mirror here. Because how many times did they slam the NDP when the Liberals are in power and and re- tried to remind people of the dismal decade of the 1990s when yeah. the NDP were in power and kept going back to the well on things like the fast ferry scandal from you know 20 years ago or more. And you know here they are. And the NDP used to say the same thing. Oh, that's all you guys want to do is look backwards. We're talking about today. Now the roles have been reversed and the talking points get reversed as well. So, But I think that uh, the, the liberals are particularly vulnerable on a, on a few points on their record. How about ICBC, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're bracing for some ICBC rate hikes here. Um, could be unpopular if people got to pay more for their insurance. The liberals are going to try and score some points over, after, over that if people got to pay more for their auto insurance. But then the NDP got a natural comeback, and they say, well, you you are the guys, we're cleaning up your mess. You're yeah. the guys who mismanaged ICBC. You are the guys who took a billion bucks out of ICBC and used it like a piggy bank to put it into general revenue, something the NDP is saying they're not going to do. Well, especially on ICBC, I mean, the, the NDP have got a lot of mileage out of that argument. And we're almost, yeah. we're going to hit the halfway point uh, next year in the NDP's term in government, uh, yeah. four years conceivably, and they're still talking about how the liberals set the dumpster fire. At some point, David Eby is going to have to, I think after April, when his savings are supposed to kick in, if That's he's right. continuing to complain about the Liberals after that, I think we're into the, the rewriting of the history. As you mentioned, any governing party wants to take the last you know, party's uh, record out for a ride and call it the dismal decade. We see David Eby is kind of the architect of that. Every time he talks about something in government, he also points out this is the Liberals' fault. Yeah. So, But I think we got to be coming to the end of that cycle at some point, Uh I just think it's, a, it's quite a, a a good pile of ammunition the NDP have managed EB's, to use. And EB's good at it, too. Yeah. You know, like, EB's an expert. EB's very partisan, even though he tries to come off as this kind of crime fighter or kind of an Elliot Ness type of guy. He's going out to get the bad guys and the gangsters and the money launderers and stuff. He does it in a way that frames the liberals as among the bad guys as well. Like if you go back to the money laundering stuff in, in casinos, you know, he'll, he'll stick it to them on that. And they're going to do more of that, I think, in the new year. They've got a new, uh, EB's going to be bringing out a new report on money laundering in real estate. Mm-hmm. And you know where that's going, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to stick it to the liberals again. So EB is very clever at the partisan positioning he takes on this stuff. I think to the frustration of the liberals and especially a guy like Wilkinson who was around for all this stuff. They, they put a leader in there who's kind of was there for a lot of it when they yeah. could have, they could have gone for someone like Diane Watts, who a lot of people thought would have been a, maybe a fresher face for them. But you know, they got a guy who was there and they guess got to live with that, I guess. Yeah. Well, it is a, it's a continual challenge reporting here when the liberals say something and you just kind of go, eh. I mean, I have struggled with this in the speaker, clerk sergeant at arm scandal that we have going on there are lots and lots of arguments the liberals are making on that scandal and you can listen to the last couple of weeks of our podcast for the background on it and they are good points they yeah, are they valid are. questions yeah they are very simple questions about accountability yeah. who spent what what do we know how can we do this and it is so difficult to advance those questions because of the very obvious partisan attack that the liberals are, are using them for against Daryl Plekis, the speaker, who they hate. Yeah. And, and you know, that idea that they created Lamsey, they created the, the legislative committee that is supposed to be solving these problems. They are the architects of the dysfunctional kind of management of the legislature. And so it's a constant challenge here to take the liberal criticism 
at its face value when there's so much baggage dragging it down. But Speak, speaking of the, the speaker situation and the sergeant at arms and the clerk who got marched out of the legislature under a police escort here, we got an RCMP investigation going on now still. We've got two special prosecutors in place. We got the speaker, Daryl Plekis, talking about potential financial wrongdoing, that maybe that's what this is about. Isn't it interesting the way that Plekis framed that, that in a, in a meeting, a recent meeting, that his concerns potentially go back years. Yeah. And he is now looking for a series of forensic audits into the office of the clerk, into the office of the sergeant at arms, and into his own office, the office of the speaker. Now, you might think, well, that's weird. Why would he want to investigate his own office? Well, remember, he's saying it's gone back years. So he's talking about previous speakers, right? Yeah. So he's talking about Linda Reed, the liberal MLA who was the speaker in the last government. Does she get dragged into something like this, right? There's more jeopardy for the liberals there, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's we're all wrestling Maybe. with. We're trying to understand what Daryl Plekis wants, and he, yeah. he wants a forensic audit, but all the MLAs you talk to say, look, we probably should not be doing a forensic audit at the same time as the RCMP are in here probing unknown allegations you won't tell us about. Yeah. However, Daryl Plekis has gone all in on the audit. He's saying he's going to resign if people don't, quote, throw up yeah. When they hear what's going on, which I, wow. I'm not sure how you exactly measure that, but uh, <laughs> but he's certainly confident there's something there. And his problem is going to be that he has promised an audit. He's promised he's going to you know blow the lid off this thing in January, and yeah. he may not actually be able to do it. And the MLAs might not want him to do it. And so he's kind of in a bit of a jam there. It continues to be a messy file. But again, it's another example of the liberal criticism being quite valid, but hard to take. And I know... We talked to Andrew Wilkinson about some other things, and one of the ones that I, I want to ask him about, Smitty, was this idea that, you know, over the last year, many of the kind of tax issues that the NDP and liberals have been fighting over have taken on this kind of this kind of whiff of what we might call a class war. So the idea of yeah. taxing the wealthy, yeah. the people who happen to own homes, who see those homes on paper at a certain value so that the money can be used for, for other people, renters, and, and just kind of that idea. And I asked Andrew Wilkinson that question, and uh, does he feel an element of class warfare going on in, with the, uh, the government and, and his opposition? And here's what he had to say. I mean, there was a... <clears throat> bubbling during the year of this idea of some sort of class war that the NDP had started upon. It came up with the $3 million surcharge on homes, the, the some of the speculation tax. Do you see any of that in, in the government? Is that a fair analysis that some people have, that there is a, a kind of a class element to this government? Well, some of us who are around in the 70s remember that what we called the campus commies used to run around saying, make the rich pay. And everybody forgot about that through the 1980s and 1990s because it didn't work. And now the NDP have come back to that because they don't have anything else to offer. So this is a very ideological NDP government. They say that there are good people and bad people. They say there needs to be a transfer of income from A to B. We already do that with progressive income tax. We all buy into that. That's a fair way to do things. But they've decided it's time to put all kinds of surcharges in because they want to get even with people. They want to have pick on their enemies and reward their friends. And it doesn't work because when you think about it, the upshot of this is, so uh, in British Columbia, what did we get from the Grand Social Agenda? We got 2,000 uh, daycare spaces at $10 a day. There are 5 million people in this province. And we got a couple of thousand modular homes for homeless people when the homeless problem is worse than it's ever been. So what have they accomplished at the end of the day? Very, very little by increasing their provincial budget by almost $6 billion. So campus commies that used to run around in the 70s <laughs> making the rich... Uh, 
pay. What do you what do you make of that? Well, again, I, I guess it's sort of an appeal to the liberal base, and if he can connect with in the minds of some voters who feel that yeah, this NDP government is radical, is extremist, that maybe they are involved in class warfare, maybe that gets the liberals some votes, you know. But if you take a look at, I think the NDP are very aware of that vulnerability they have and have been cautious to kind of calibrate the, the things that they have done carefully to kind of avoid that without, they don't want to go too far. I think a good example of that was a report that came out this week from a rental housing task force that was chaired by Spencer Chander Herbert, who's an NDP MLA. They reported out this weekend the landlords in BC who would normally be, if you want to talk about class warfare, let's talk about you know tenants versus landlords, right? Let's say the landlords would be on the liberal side of it. The landlords were worried that that committee might recommend something called vacancy control. And what that means is if a tenant moves out and a new tenant moves in, under the current law, the landlord can charge as much rent as he wants. So you can put the rent up. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no maximum. There's no rent controls because it's a new tenant. So you start fresh. You can charge whatever you want. Some people had been lobbying this government to bring in what they call vacancy control, which would mean if you bring in a new tenant, you got to charge them the old rent, right? Even if it's a new tenant. And I'll tell you, like the landlords are bracing themselves if that might be in this report that came out from this NDP-dominated committee there. It wasn't there. This It wasn't there. So they were they were quite pleased. The landlords were pleased that they didn't go that far. So if this is a class warfare government, you think they would have gone there maybe, you know? So, I mean, that kind of undercuts Wilkinson's argument, I think. Just one example. Yeah, no, and I heard Spencer Chandra Herbert say that uh, people deserve to be able to have an investment, a return yeah. on their investment yeah. if they own a condo. So yeah. that idea of not linking, you know, your rent to the unit, you link it to the renter. So when the renter leaves, landlord can jack the rent up right. if they want to right. whatever the market rate is. So That's you're right. right. That, he called it a balance, and it was a balanced approach. It was not quite as far as I would have thought that they were going to go. They did go pretty far on rent evictions, and yes. there is a proposal in that report to ban strata councils from forbidding people from renting their units in a the building. There's, there are buildings in the province right now where the strata bylaws you can't rent. So that, that may be something that comes off the table. But you're right. I mean, there are harder line positions this government could take on issues like that that they haven't. But on the speculation tax, which the the Liberals had a field day with the speculation tax, they called it the the envy tax, the jealousy tax, that idea if you happen to have worked hard and owned a cottage or a second home. It's like or, a wealth tax. Yeah, right? another another condo or something like that, that you were going to get hammered with this speculation tax. Yeah. Um, they, they got fairly good mileage out of that, but I yeah. don't think it's proven to be a massive wedge vote getting issue. Well, it affects just a, sm- a narrow percentage of the population, yeah. right? Like if you have if you're fortunate enough to own two homes, <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't like the speculation tax, but how many people does that affect, you know? Yeah. And then the idea of the school tax surcharge on yeah. homes worth more than more, 3 million. Yeah. That one's a little bit more complicated because you do have some examples of uh, retirees who have owned a home for 40, 50 years. Now it's worth $4 million in Vancouver on paper, but yeah. they don't have an income that is $4 million. They, they yeah. have their retiree income. Yeah. I don't know how widespread that is, but it's certainly the idea of it, going after that, that elderly couple and their family home, which is now worth a lot of money on paper. It's been a success for the Liberals in raising that specter as well. Yeah, but I think overall the NDP have been very careful about how just just calculating how far they can go with a lot of this stuff. And I think the reason why maybe, Rob, is they think they can be a two-term government here. They, they think they can win another election. I, yeah. I, like, I'm sure that's what's going through Horgan's mind. You know what? I'm not going to be a one-hit wonder here. 
I think I can run and win again mm-hmm. and, and get reelected. Now, I know you asked, you asked Wilkinson whether he thinks there could be an early election, right, coming yeah. up in the new year. Let's listen to what he had to say about that. Well, in November, there were a couple of votes in the legislature that were tied, 42 to 42. And that shows you how brittle this government is. And when they're as high-handed as they are with their taxation policies and their attitudes, but they're barely holding on by the skin of their teeth, I think the chance of election in 2019 is pretty high, and we're going to be ready for that. I think, you know, there's a a by-election in Nanaimo where we have just a first-class candidate, and the NDP are getting very stressed about that because they know if they lose that by-election and we're successful, there's going to be a general election. Is the party ready? I mean, you hear... It's tougher to raise money in opposition. You had debt from the last election. Is it ready to launch into a general election in the next year? We'll be ready for sure. And we often hear that the NDP raised more money than us last year. That's true if you leave out the $4 million that was raised by the leadership candidates. If you add that in, we out-fundraised the NDP by 3 to 1. So I'm not overly concerned about our ability to put things together. So what do you think of that? Well, I mean, he is pointing out correctly that there were a couple tied votes, although I don't think they were major votes. And I I know the Liberals believe that at some point they may, through some procedural trickery or sleight of hand, bring this government down on a confidence vote. Maybe someone gets stuck in the bathroom on the NDP side and bang, the government comes down. A, it's not going to happen like that. B, I don't see any real daylight between the NDP and Greens in that relationship. They're closer now than they were in the past. And and I know the Liberal base wants a snap election. I don't think the Liberals have the money. Uh, And uh, I did ask Andrew Wilkinson in that clip, are they ready? He said, sure, yeah, we can be ready. I don't think they have the money. I don't think they have the organization. I don't think they have the platform. They have yet to grapple with some of the major issues like what is their child care plan? What is their housing plan? They, They still have not figured that out since the last election. So as much as the Liberals will tell you they want a snap election uh, and that the chances are pretty high and they'll win the Nanaimo by-election and we'll yeah. all be at the polls, I'm not sure I see it. And even more importantly, I don't think that the Liberals actually would benefit from that. I think there's a there's a couple of ways that a snap election could happen. One is if the Liberals somehow, like you said, pull off a, an upset in Nanaimo and they steal that seat from the NDP, which looks appears to be a safe NDP seat, but you never know. Maybe the, the Liberals have a pretty good candidate up there. Maybe they maybe they win that. That certainly would b- potentially bring the government down. Also, what if this this whole speaker thing with the the, the clerk and the sergeant at arms? What if all that ricochets mm-hmm. and backfires on Daryl Plekis, the speaker? We heard him saying that uh, that he put everything on, like you mentioned earlier. He's put everything on the line here, saying if if people are not rev, uh, revulsed and th- throw up, as he put it, puke. Yeah, by uh, by Blue chunks by this guy. We could go on and on. <laughs> yeah. By the uh, what? But this alleged whatever the, the, he's concerned about with the uh, these two officials in the legislature that he would resign, right? Mm-hmm. So he put his job in the line. Now, if he resigned, I think that potentially is is a yep. moment where they, could, that could bring the government down. You never know, too. Like sometimes people quit. There's a scandal. You know, someone gets sick. You never know. Something yep. could happen. But I think the likelihood of, of an election in 2019, it's certainly there. There's a chance of it happening, but maybe not, you know, maybe wouldn't bet on it. But you can see how the liberal lines that we've but been they talking want one. about. They want an election. We've been talking about them 
trying to find votes, you know, in the subjects in this podcast. And it's predicated on the idea that maybe they have to go get those votes in 2019. So I don't know if we see the liberal strategy change when the idea of an election starts to fall off the table in 2019. If we don't get one, yeah. what's their strategy in 2020? How does it change? But they for now, find something new. they're kind of on high alert, for better or for worse, for them. So it was interesting talking to Andrew Wilkinson. I mean, I did ask him about his child care plan, and he criticized the NDP for the grand socialist agenda that has only produced, you know, a, a small number of childcare seats and uh, and a smaller number in a pilot project at $10 a day. Fair enough. Uh, the, you know, $10 a day daycare has not materialized in the way it was promised by the NDP in the last True. election. Yeah. However, it has materialized to a certain extent in pilot projects. There are more seats. There is more money. I'm not... I, I have yet to figure out where the Liberals are going with that because... Are, are they proposing a massive child care investment? I, I have not heard that. I, yeah. So I've, those are issues where I think the party's still wrestling with opposing versus proposing and the challenge of opposition to oppose the government's plan. But what is what is their plan? And you, most often oppositions don't want to give you their plan until right before an election. Yeah. Because uh, then it gets picked apart by government and the vast resources of all of the government bureaucracy. So I, I don't know what the child care plan or the housing plan is from the liberals. And is it... It's tough to to gauge whether they've learned the lessons from the last election when you don't know what they're actually proposing. He's going to have to propose something if there is a snap election call. It's not impossible. Could happen. So maybe there's some planning going on behind the back in the back in the background that we're not aware of. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. 2019, yeah. 2018 was a wild year, and we're going to uh, 2019 could be even wilder. We're going to carry on the next couple of weeks in our podcast. Next week we're going to chat with uh, Green Leader. Uh, Andrew Weaver and yep. uh, ask him some questions and the week after that we'll have Premier John Horgan with some clips on that we can chat with you about so we're going to see you pretty much through most of December and the uh, leaning back drinking some eggnog listening to <laughs> us in your ear holes uh, talk oh. about BC politics that's pretty good Great, and make sure you subscribe right? Yeah subscribe to the podcast and you'll get uh, the update as soon as we've filed it and until then we will uh, see you next week Talk to you then